Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made its nest in its, in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Let's ask the Lord's help as we prepare to open his word. Heavenly Father, we do bow our hearts before you today, this day that you have set apart for the worship of your name, this day that you have given us that we might come and find our rest in you. And Lord, we pray as we open up your word today that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would grant us your grace, that we might diligently listen to you, that we would feast on what is good, that we would delight ourselves in the rich food of your word. Help us, God. Help us to incline our ears and to come, that we might hear, that our souls might live. We ask this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, when Jesus began his public ministry, he went into the synagogue and quoting from the prophet Isaiah, he said that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to set at liberty those who are oppressed. His ministry was going to be one that was marked by freedom and liberty and release. And we see that here in our passage today. Our passage is a fulfillment of that. It's also a bridge between uh, where we have been, between the section that begins in chapter 9, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem and the city itself, when he will come in, preparing to go to the cross. Our passage is also the last time 
that we will find him in the synagogue, uh, speaking, preaching, uh, giving a sign there uh, where the people of God come to worship. And so it stands as a witness to those who are able, uh, like we saw recently, to read the appearance of earth and sky, saying, can you interpret the present time? Can you interpret what God in Christ is doing in the world? It's yet another sign beckoning those who have eyes to hear, eyes to see and, and ears to hear, saying, are you going to join and giving glory to the Father by bearing fruit and keeping with repentance? Are you going to be like that, that fig tree that doesn't bear any fruit and that's destined only to be chopped down and thrown into the fire? So we find Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And that detail, that time stamp is, is very important. It's repeated in this passage five times that he was there on the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, doubled over, the text tells us, so that she could not fully straighten herself. Now, many there would have assumed that her physical condition was the result of some sin on her part. Uh, we saw that last week. She must be a terrible sinner. That's why she's in the predicament that she is. No, remember what Jesus said. No, I tell you. Well, what does the text tell us about her situation? It tells us she had a disabling spirit. For 18 years, this had been the case. She had been bound by Satan. Now, if you will look down at verse 16, you'll see that the text also describes her as a daughter of Abraham. So the question I want to present to you today is, how could it be the case that a daughter of Abraham could also be bound by Satan? The easy answer to that kind of question would be to say that when Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham, that he's just using those words in the sense of physical generation, that she is a Jew by virtue of her birth, by natural descent, and that what you have here is just another case of demonic possession. I don't believe that that's the case. Notice that the Bible does not tell us she was demon-possessed but that there was a kind of physical bondage that she had been subjected to. In the same way that Job, a righteous and upright man who feared the Lord and turned away from evil, was afflicted by the devil with loathsome sores from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. Or we think about the Apostle Paul, how it was given him under the sovereign hand of God, to be sure, but given him a messenger of Satan to harass him. So this woman is no doubt afflicted by the devil, but that is not all we see here. There is as well the witness of her life. Now, what do we find there? Well, this precious woman, in her affliction, where do we find her? She's in the synagogue. 
She's at the place of worship. She's there on a Sabbath, keeping the day, remembering it, keeping it holy. She has come to cease from her labors, to worship, to hear the word of God. What a lesson there is for us here. For nearly two decades, this woman has been suffering. And yet, what do we find? Her suffering hasn't driven her away from the Lord. It has driven her to the Lord. She's in the place of worship. Now think about all of the obstacles and all of the excuses she must have found herself wrestling with over the course of those 18 years. How easy would it have been for her to say, well, my condition makes it very hard for me to be in the house of worship, to go to the house of prayer. How easy would it have been for her to reason with herself about her troubles and to come away wallowing in self-pity and shame and say to herself, well, you know, it's just better that I stay home. She doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. And her presence here alone in the synagogue speaks volumes about the source of her hope and her treasure. She's in the house of God in the midst of her affliction. Remember that, brothers and sisters. I wonder whether she ever found herself thinking of passages like Psalm 119 and verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Would I have known such humble dependence on the Lord had it not been for the fact that God in his sovereign wisdom had seen fit to order my steps as he has? Would I have perceived the depth of my spiritual need, my greater need, had the Lord not permitted me to walk through what in his infinite wisdom He has allowed me to walk through. Praise God that we are not the ones ordering the steps of our lives. God is the one ordering our steps. You make your plans, but the Lord orders your steps and glory be to his name. He does all things well. Think about that as you consider whatever straits you are in. He does all things well. For many of you, it was difficult to get yourself here, today even. Some of you, because of physical maladies, you can relate on some level to what this woman is going through. Others, because of family concerns or other difficulties or challenges in your life. But your presence here, even despite what you might describe as very weak, uh, feeble kind of faith, is a testament. It's a testament to where your trust is found. And, and don't mistake the fact that it's an encouragement to your brothers and sisters around you who see you walking through what you are and nevertheless clinging to the Lord in trust. It's good that you're here. And so I take Jesus' description of this woman as a daughter of Abraham to be in keeping with what Paul talks about In Galatians 3 and verse 7, where he says that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those of faith. This is a believing woman who is afflicted, yes, by the devil, not on account of her sin, and is nevertheless 
clinging to the Lord in faith. And that brings us to these wonderful words in verse 12, Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. This woman would have been very easy for others to miss, very easy for others to overlook, not just literally speaking, doubled over as she was, but because of the social predicament she found herself in, because of the social ostracism she must have certainly contended with for these 18 years. But Jesus saw her. And in his mercy and compassion, he takes notice of her. He takes notice of her miserable, uh, pitiable condition, and he bid her come. Jesus saw her, and he called her over. Isn't that wonderful? Two things I want you to notice here about verses 11 and 12. First, the condition of the woman. And just notice how Luke sets forward this woman. She is disabled. She's oppressed. She is one in need of mercy. And that's, that's really all that there is. No credentials are mentioned. There is nothing here spoken about her deservedness. There is no merit on her part. Nothing is said that would single her out as someone who is worthy of Jesus's attention, of his loving kindness, and yet there it is. There it is. Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus, full of compassion and care, he calls out to her and he invites her over. Now, second, notice the conditions of Christ's call. Brothers and sisters, what does the Lord Jesus require of her that she might know his healing touch? What do you see in the scriptures? Simply that she come. Simply that she come to him. There is no preparation required. There is no getting her affairs in order. There is no getting cleaned up. Just come, wretched, poor, sick, and sore, pitiful as you are. Come, come to the Lord Jesus. What a word of comfort and hope this is to our souls to sinners, sick and sore, needy, miserable, like we are. What a comfort this is to know that you may have spent a life in bondage, and yet Christ bids you come, and to come as you are and find his mercy and his grace. Though great our sins and sore our wounds, his grace much more aboundeth, we sing. His helping love No limit knows our utmost need, it soundeth. This is the Savior that we worship and adore. If we be willing to heed his call and come to him, he'll heal us. Do you think it required courage of her to say, I need you, Christ. I need your healing hand. Do you think it required courage humility on her part to drag herself forward in the midst of that crowd and to say in a manner of speaking, I have no hope unless you come and touch me. I have a great need. No one else can remedy. 
except for the Lord Jesus Christ. It certainly did. But when you have gotten a sight of the Savior, when you have seen what his glory and his saving power is able to do, what will hold you back? Will you not come to him? He will rid us of our infirmity. He will rid us of our spiritual sickness, the greatest infirmity we all face, and that of sin, the guilt and power of our sin. If we will come to him, he will make us whole. The Bible tells us that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. And that is still true today. It doesn't matter how long you have lived in your condition. It doesn't matter how old you are. Satan may have spent 18 years exerting his horrible influence on this woman's body, but all it took was one touch of Jesus Christ to make her whole. She couldn't straighten herself. There was nothing she could do, but Jesus could do it all. Jesus can do it all. He's full of saving power for those that will come to him. And he did. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Immediately. I love that word. Immediately she was made straight. And what happened next? Straightway she glorified God. She began to give glory to the Father in heaven. That head which once had been bowed down to the ground was lifted up to the Lord and she praised his name. She gave witness to God's divine power which, is, which was at work in his beloved son. That's what happens whenever a sinner encounters the saving power of Jesus Christ. The orientation of their life changes. They begin to give glory to the Father. There's a new orientation you begin to speak publicly and openly about what God in Christ has done for you to deliver you, to rescue you. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, you remember what God has done for you? You remember, do you still possess the joy of your salvation? May we be those like this woman who ascribe glory to the name of our God. Now, what a contrast we find then when we come to verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, he does not glorify God, does he? He is indignant. So the spiritual leader over this local assembly, the one that everyone in the congregation is looking to for direction, and counsel, he is fuming. And why is that? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. Again, this is underscored for us five times in this, hap- in this passage. It happened on the Sabbath. The leader of the synagogue is indignant, and he thinks that it's righteous indignation. How do we know that? Well, he makes his appeal on the basis of scripture. Did you know you, you can think that you are righteously indignant, believe that you have a scriptural foundation for that and be in error? Here we have an example of that. This is perhaps the, the most troubling thing about it all. 
This ruler is convinced that he has the weight and authority of God's word on his side. The ruler says there are six days in which work ought to be done. Where did he get that idea? He got it from the Hebrew Bible. He got it from, uh, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. So he's, he's convinced this kind of thing is off limits on the Sabbath. And so he's got the nerve to tell Jesus how to go about his mercy ministry. Come on those other days and be healed, just not on the Sabbath day. Now you see the irony here. This woman who has been disabled for 18 years has just been set free. She's just been liberated. And the ruler of the synagogue comes along and he says in in so many words, look, just make an appointment for any other day of the week and you can have this sort of thing done. Just don't let it happen on the Sabbath. You see their, their blindness. She's been healed. Now, if she has been healed, who has healed her? Is it not God? If it is God, are you prepared to stand in his way? Are you prepared to stand in the way of the divine will? It's not insignificant that Luke continues his narration of this account and begins Jesus' rebuke of this man by calling Christ the Lord. In verse 15, so yes, Jesus is a rabbi, he is a teacher, but he's more than that. He is what the ruler of the synagogue is not. He is the Lord. And the Lord responds by saying, you hypocrites. You see how he, he reigns in here, not just the ruler of the synagogue, but everyone that would agree with him. You hypocrites, plural. That, that helps us to see just how much this legalistic, hypocritical approach to the worship of God had, had infiltrated first century Judaism during these times. It had reached epidemic proportions. It drags into light all that was wrong with worship during these days. We're going to see this for the next four chapters in our study of Luke's gospel as Jesus constantly confronts the Pharisees over hypocrisy, over what really is, at the end of the day, nothing less than false religion. They despise the work of God. They make a mockery out of true religion, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. They have a pretended concern for the, love of God, for the law of God, for the traditions of men. They don't have any understanding for the heart of God for his redemptive purposes in the lives of needy sinners. What do they do? They, they heap these pharisaical, burdensome, uh, extra-biblical requirements upon the people instead of pointing them to the true life-giving rest that's found in the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the love of God for sinners It's found in a righteousness that comes not by keeping the law, but by faith. When Jesus says, you 
hypocrites. He's exposing the false religion so many of them clung to. He's shedding light on this supposed piety they have, saying this is just a pretense. This is man-made religion. You give so much attention and so much weight to the traditions of men. They, they had come up with 39 different categories of work that was forbidden. You could lead an ox to water, for example, as long as they didn't have a burden on their back. You couldn't do that. You could draw uh, water up from a well, but you couldn't hold on to the bucket while they drank out of it. They had invented so many rules that they'd gotten to this place where they now view healing as equivalent to labor. They're angry that a woman has been healed. And Jesus says, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You don't have any problem leading your animals off to drink. So what gives? The law allows for works of necessity and works of mercy on the Sabbath. In fact, more than allows, the law actually commanded you, if you saw even your enemy's ox fall into a ditch, you had to go and help. You had to go and show mercy to your enemy's animal. Now, if an ox or a donkey, how much more a daughter of Abraham? Jesus says, ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As if to say nothing could be more fitting on this day of worship and rest than to see this woman loosed from her bondage. He says to the ruler, you say this ought not to be done. I say, ought not this woman be set free from her bonds? So actually, Jesus's argument here is that more than this being fitting, this is actually necessary. It's necessary. This is something that ought to happen. Remember what Moses says in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 5, where he is Uh, reinforcing the purpose and the good grounds that we have for remembering the Sabbath day. In Exodus uh, chapter 20, where the law is given, the Ten Commandments are given, the fourth commandment, the commandment to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, is grounded in the pattern that we see established at creation. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it, and rested on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. When you come to Deuteronomy chapter five, uh, and Moses reiterates uh, the, the law, the 10 commandments are given again there, he adds this, under inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is on the other side of the Exodus. He says, you shall remember, this is Deuteronomy 5 and verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You see how Moses speaks of the the basis we have for worshiping the Lord. Why 
Should the people of God be sure to devote themselves to to faithful Sabbath observance so their hearts would be reminded of God's gracious, liberating, delivering work? See, church, remembering the Sabbath isn't something that should be treated as some kind of heavy burden. It's it's not something that should be looked at as, as some sort of crushing obligation that is laid upon our backs. This is a day for rejoicing, for celebration. This is a day for rest as we remember the redeeming love of God. Call the Sabbath a delight. God told his people in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 50, 58, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I'll make you to ride on the heights of the earth. Now, how much more is this to be the case with the advent of Jesus Christ? How much more does the loosing of our chains and the freedom from our sins wrought by the spilled blood of Jesus Christ invite us to come and rejoice and remember what the Lord has done and to pray that God would do it again and again, that he would set free Those who are oppressed, those who are in bondage. What are we today but a congregation full of spiritually lame people Christ has laid his healing hands upon? That's what we are. God has delivered us. He has set us free in Christ. So nothing could be more in keeping with the spirit of the day than to see this woman healed. The heart of the Sabbath is about rest. It's about broken, weary, lame, uh, sin-sick sinners coming and finding salvation and healing and refreshment and renewal and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. He's where true rest is found. Now it says that as Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. You know, all the people rejoiced and all the glorious things that were done by him. So you see here, Christ has worked. He's shown himself powerful to save. And what immediately happens? Well, there's a parting of the waters. There's a choosing of sides. There's a fulfillment of Christ's words that he came to bring division. Just as we've seen so many times in our study of this gospel, there was no room for neutral ground. There's no opportunity to try to find a third way here. There's no sitting on the fence. You're either for him or you're against him. You are put to shame or you're numbered among those rejoicing in his glorious works. Now you know the question that's coming. Where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself today? What of which of these two camps are you numbered in? Where do you stand? Jesus looks at this scene and he, he uses it as a teaching moment in verses 18 to 21. The word therefore in verse 18 stands as this point of connection between this episode that we've just looked at and verses 1 to 17 and the teaching that follows. Jesus is going to expound on what has just happened 
and he's going to do so by way of parable. In fact, by way of two parables here. Uh, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? So when you see a word like that, young people, you want to ask yourself, how does this relate? How do these two portions of God's word connect together? Why does Jesus immediately turn from the healing of this woman to offering a description of the kingdom of God and in fact do that twice over? One clue is found in the analogies that he draws. How has Jesus just made himself known? How has the power of God just been demonstrated. It's not through big names in in high places. It's not through this mighty army overthrowing Roman rule. It's not by way of military conquest. It's not through any of the normal means you would ordinarily associate with the establishment of a kingdom. You know, something that is absolutely uh, cataclysmic in nature, some enormous show of force. There is nothing of that nature here. What does he do? He shows his power through a lowly, overlooked, disabled woman, someone who probably lived on the fringes of society. You see how the, the Savior that we worship upends conventional wisdom. He delights to extend his rule and to show his power through, in fact, the most unconventional means. And so what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests and its branches Jesus says the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is not going to be the kind of thing that happens suddenly or dramatically all at once. It's going to happen slowly. It will happen gradually as the gospel is declared, as hearts are converted. What do we see today? What do we see in, in the world we live in? Well, what started off as this uh, scrappy band of disciples 2,000 years ago has blossomed into people from every tribe, tongue, and language all around the world who claim Jesus Christ as Lord in spite of resistance, in spite of opposition and persecution and martyrdom. Still, we see the progress of the gospel continue and continue to go forth. The kingdom is growing. You are evidence of that. This church is evidence of that. The the church in, in China or Zambia or the Middle East is evidence of the kingdom of God growing. And as it does, what happens? Well, it provides shelter and shade for the birds of the air to come and nest in its branches. More and more come and take refuge and find rest in the sanctuary that it affords. You find this, this image of, the, of, of a tree growing and birds coming to nest in its branches in, in quite a number of places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 17, for example. But the, the connection this parable has to the previous passage 
Well, it also helps us to see that Jesus isn't just saying that the kingdom of God starts small and grows big. That's true. But he's also saying it begins in surprising ways. It begins through seemingly insignificant, inconsequential means. It has very humble origins. It begins in obscurity. And even when it's fully grown, a mustard tree, it's, it's not that big. It's not that impressive uh, as far as trees go. That's a point of contrast that you find with the images uh, that you read about in the Old Testament, usually there in the Old Testament, it's those, those mighty cedars of Lebanon uh, that, that are described here. Here, no, it's just a mustard tree. And it's kind of fun. Scholars like to get into all kinds of debates about just what particular variety of mustard tree uh, was, was in view here. Well, whatever the case, the point here is this is a twist in the story. This is a departure from the standard image that Jews would have been familiar with. Some mustard trees only get four or five feet tall. And so this is meant to be a bit of surprise. The kingdom of God doesn't always look like what you might expect it to look like. Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now here, Jesus brings us into the kitchen of a first century woman, and we find her doing some really serious baking. This is the equivalent of about a 50-pound sack of flour she's working with. Now, you take that 50-pound sack of flour and you, you mix whatever amount of water is necessary and, and, you, and that's all you do and you're going to have a bunch of bricks on your hand after it comes out of the oven. But if you take leaven, you give it some time, You're going to find that thing puffing up. It's going to grow. It's going to introduce all kinds of flavor. Uh, It's going to go into the oven and it's going to brown. And it's going to be beautiful when it comes out. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like leaven working in the world. And often it is the case that the Lord Jesus is found working in the world quietly in an under-the-radar sort of way. Nothing that is outwardly spectacular. Nothing that you would say is theatrical, often in quiet, uh, hidden ways. And yet, nevertheless, he is transforming what he touches. Lives are being changed. So remember the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Zechariah. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. When you find yourself surrounded by adversaries or or you're in a situation where the world scorns you because of your love for Christ and your allegiance to his name, or you question whether someone like yourself has has a role to play in the kingdom of God, remember this word. 
Remember this afflicted woman God was pleased to use so mightily for his glory. Go on sharing the gospel. Go on living for him, walking by faith. The day is still on the horizon when, to use another image, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And until then, his truth goes marching on. And he has called us to be faithful citizens in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we find in your word. Lord, we thank you that you delight to use sinners like us for the glory of your name. Lord, we're thankful that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that in the knowledge of your Son, we, we know that we can cease from our labors, our works, our vain striving. Lord, that we can leave off trying to win your favor by the things that we do. Lord, the cross shows us the folly of all of that. It shows us the depth of our sin. I thank you, Lord, that it also testifies to the provision that has been made. So we glory, Lord, as your people in the joy of being found in your Son. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity today to remember that we possess a righteousness of our own, not of our own, that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith. Lord, I pray for us as your church. I pray that you would use us for your glory, O oh God. I ask that you would use us like you use this woman to extend your kingdom to bring glory to yourself. We pray that it would be evident in the testimony of our lives that the surpassing power belongs to you and not to us. That by your grace, many would come to rejoice at the glorious things you've done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.